You're listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast with your host, Andy Plymer. For someone to explain. Bringing you up-to-date coaching concepts from the world of rugby. Sharing ideas to make the game better. Welcome to episode number 42 of the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Plymer, and joining me today is Nick Hill. Nick is a former professional player of nine years with the Northampton Saints, Exeter Chiefs, Bedford Blues and Nuneaton and also represented England U19 in the 1999 Junior World Cup. Being a rugby coach for 17 years and a PE teacher for 15, Nick has worked in schools and clubs where he has coached players from eight years old through to 58 years old in both the Northern and Southern Hemisphere. It's a pleasure to have him on the show, so welcome Nick. Thank you very much. Yeah, no worries. So we briefly touched on your playing and coaching career. Can you go into a bit more details on uh, on both those areas? It, it first started off in my junior rugby club, age five years old, when I just tagged along with my old, older brother. Yep. And played, you know, I went through the age groups. You know, you got the local dad coaching you for numerous years. And then the school I went, secondary school I went to, had a, you know, had a rugby program. And I was very lucky that, Two of my PE teachers were, you could call them at the time, professional rugby players. It wasn't professional back then. Mm. Uh, one was the Northampton Saints fly half, and the other guy was the hooker, John Olver. And he was the captain of the team at the time. And the year I joined that school, he, he would be playing in, for England in the 1991 World Cup. Right, awesome. You know, so just timing, really. And so I went through school, played a bit of... Um, Again, club and school at the same time, you know, basically doing sports seven days a week. Um, and then as I got older and older, I got on the rep teams, you know, local rep teams under 14 and 15 and things like that. And through that, got scouted by Northampton Saints and invited to training as a 16-year-old. And, you know, training with 19-year-olds, it was a, a massive learning curve. So yeah. that kind of laid the foundations to then, you know, as you mentioned, I play for England under 19 and... Saints, second team, academy, uh, all the teams, uh, captain various age groups through there. And then combined my study and, and my teaching career alongside playing at the same time. So that's kind of my playing background. And when did you first dip your toe in the water for coaching? I suppose that seed was sown when I was about, again, going to second, secondary school at age 11 with the inspiration of my two teachers. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, I want to be a PE teacher. Um, and then professional rugby came along and then said, you know, I'd love to be, you know, head of a rugby program in a school. So just went back to my old school to start with, doing university just to, you know, put my hands, you know, in, 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 in coaching. Um, so that was like part time and then started off teaching, just general PE and science teaching, you know, cover yep. teaching. And then I actually got a job back at my old school as head of the rugby program. And I did that for a couple of years, basically as a you know an apprenticeship. Yeah, just uh, really, you know, learning all the ropes, the different areas of the job. And then I, you know, you could call it a promotion to Dunstan College. They were looking for a director of rugby because their rugby program needed a bit of bit of a kick. Um, and so yeah, applied and got the job, and I was there for eight years. Uh, I was very lucky; the headmaster gave me a clean slate, basically, to create a philosophy and an approach. And, you know, the support of the, the teachers in the school and the parents and the, and the governors um, 
had a great eight years there and I took it as far as I could. Um, throughout that process, I did some rep team coaching in under 14 to under 18 and various head coach roles, assistant roles, mm-hmm. you know, to keep myself in like the talent development aspect. And then just needed a, a new challenge um, out of my comfort zone. So that's how I, you know, I through a attending a conference i spoke with someone and then next thing i know it was on a plane out to chile so yeah it's quite the challenge there so what, what's a bit of a description with your role there in chile and and also for those not familiar with the chilean rugby landscape what, what's a bit of a an idea on, on where where the main centers are and and those kind of things yeah so i came across it employed by by school as head of rugby and i was a PE teacher at the same time uh, at the same time, I started coaching the kids in the club. Uh, the school and the club are directly linked. Mm-hmm. Uh, as time went on, the last four years, I then coached in the club with the adult teams in the top division of the Chile uh, league here. Um, so as you mentioned in the beginning, I coached kids from eight-year-olds up to 18 in the school and then the adults in the club. Um, and the landscape here in Chile... There's, there's rugby pretty much the whole length of the country uh, where there's any towns and things and mixture of schools and clubs with Santiago being the main area. Mm-hmm. Then there's pockets in Antofagasta in the far north, uh, Viña in the west by the coast, and then down south, uh, two towns of Concepcion and Tamuku. So they're like the main you know, satellite areas of where rugby happens in the country. Right. We're, Santiago being the, the strongest area, and in essence, that's where the, the Premier Division here in Chile runs. Um, with surrounds twelve to sixteen clubs, depending. Okay. Um, but it, yeah, it's up to sixteen clubs now. Um, basically, it splits the the competition into two leagues. Uh, you play in your league, and then you qualify for the top eight, for the top four of each side of the draw. Mm-hmm. You play the top eight, and then there's semi-final and finals to to decide who the club champions are each year. Then there's, you know, overall there's plenty of potential uh, in the in the country, and there's a good tradition going back to you know 19, 1920s uh, when various schools started playing rugby. So. Mm-hmm. All right, sounds awesome. Sounds like it'd be a really cool part of the world to live in. Okay, so I got you on the show uh, for some of the stuff that you put out on your website, and I'll, I'll put the, the link to that on uh, on the show notes and also some of the stuff you you, you tweet. Uh, you do a lot of work with Teaching Games for Understanding, also known as TGFU. Can you give us a bit of a background on what Teaching Games for Understanding are and, and why coaches should maybe consider having at least having a look at, at this philosophy? Sure. If you were to read the, the textbooks, it's basically a theoret- theoretical model uh, that moves in a constant cycle, really. Where you start with a game, uh, and then it moves around game, game appreciation, tactical awareness, making appropriate decisions, skill execution, and performance. And basically, it teaches the why first, the what to do, when to do it, not just how to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's also a part of the player-centered coaching philosophy approach by Lynn Kidman, yeah. who who's very you know one of the I'd call her the one of the experts in in player centered coaching. Absolutely. With with Rod Thorpe and David Bunker from Loughborough University being the founding fathers of the approach in the early nineteen eighties. Um, where they saw a traditional method that produced skillful players but poor games players. 
in essence, you focus on the game as a whole mm-hmm. instead of breaking it up into fundamental skills and techniques. And one way I put it across in simplest terms, you start with a game, not end with a game. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, you see that a lot. Like I see it every weekend uh, with my daughter. She's six years old and she plays ringette, which is kind of like ice hockey, but with a stick and a ring on the ice. And, uh, you know, she, she she's on the ice for 50 minutes and the last 10 minutes of that is a, is a game at the end. And it, it drives me bananas because you see how much learning takes place in that 10 minutes compared to, you know, the 40 minutes earlier where they're skating around cones and passing to imaginary people and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, so I couldn't agree with you more on that. And uh, what, what, are, what are some of your personal favourites that, that you like to call on uh, when, you're, when you're coaching this way? Um, it's, you know, after, after an athletic development dynamic warm-up, mm-hmm. pretty much get the game up and running, depending how many players, um, 15 v 15 or 10 v 10. Yep. Uh, some basic rules up. Uh, for basically around the breakdown area, for example, okay, when a guy gets tackled is a is a grab mm-hmm. I use, and you know two guys over, two on the floor, and, and and just play. That's and I just referee that for those basic rules for five minutes. Mm-hmm. So the game just evolves and develops. Um, in terms of some of my favourite examples, uh, in particular, like the younger younger kids of understanding. How to work on running harder, fast into space. When there's a breakdown, I would say, okay, all the players come in and touch the rock. Yeah. And you go and, you know, tackle, grab, you know, the, the attackers. Or everyone has to run out and touch the try line. Yeah. So you make obvious where the space is for the kids to run into. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as, you know, those kids get more developed in that aspect or older players, you know, I'll just pair up two defenders together in, in the defensive line. So we still have the same formation around the breakdown, mm-hmm. you know, two down, two guards. Um, but in the, if you're in the D line, you're paired up with someone. So again, that just naturally creates more space between players. And then with, again, more challenging aspect, I the defensive team splitting them into two different color bibs and say it's red and blue bibs. Yep. If the red team grab or tackle the guy, the rest of that red team run back to the try line. Oh, great. And so therefore, that's in the D line of the blue players. Mm-hmm. And in essence, you find that the, the two colors alternate each time who's making the tackle and the grab, who's in the D line, who's running back. Um, that's that's one of my favorite aspects of working on the, that principle of hard and fast into space. Yeah, I think um, you hear a lot of the academics talk about this and they, they, they mention creating a decision-rich environment and I can just picture that last one that you explained there where every situation that the players are seeing is completely different. Uh, and they have to self-organise and create solutions and trial and error these things just exactly how you do in a rugby game. Yeah, because the, the players sometimes in the D-line, the guys running back, are, you know, they're out wide. Mm. A couple of phases later, the defenders are naturally in the middle. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, constantly changing pretty much every phase, the picture, the taxi. Yeah, and you also get some game-specific fitness benefits as well out of those situations too. That's, you know, going back to like why using this approach, it's, it's working on fitness at the same time, you know, and I find to tend that the players then enjoy it more. They feel like they've had a, like a, a workout. Yeah. And it's proof to increase intrinsic motivation. Um, 
And then going back to the example with your daughter ice hockey, and I've seen it here in Chile with the hockey and football and things, it's, it removes the question, when can we play a game? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the whole, the whole a game. thing is a game. game you know? Yeah. That's, that's all kids and players want to do is play games. And so it gets everyone active and engaged. You know, you're learning about skills in the context of the game rather than separate from it. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier on Lynn Kidman and her, her book, Athlete-Centered Coaching, Developing Decision Makers. It, it's just outstanding. And it's, it's up on my website just as a link uh, for coaches if they want to want to try and track down that resource. And I highly recommend it to, to people. Uh, was that one of your first introductions to TGFU or was that you just came across that as part of the journey? It was part of the journey along the way. But in essence, it was like the first book in, in this field. I, mm. you know, I read, I've read all, all of her books now and I've read some of the Game Sense books of Richard Light, which, you know, in my opinion, they're basically the same thing, but mm. there's slightly different technicalities. Um, for example, teaching games for understanding is, you know, the Kids are trying to learn how to play the game. Mm-hmm. In a rugby context, quite often the kids already know the game, so you're working on their tactics, and that's kind of where game game sense principles come in. Um, but my my beginning journey of this started, you know, when I was involved in England under nineteen team, and Brian Ashton was my rugby coach. Oh, awesome! Who's a who's a big fan of this approach? And mm-hmm. uh, as I moved into my coaching and teaching, he. He just helped England win the World Cup in 2003. He wasn't technically one of the, the World Cup coaching team, but the years before that, he was one of Sir Clive's assistants. Mm-hmm. And he, after the World Cup, he was went to various conferences and seminars. And so having been coached by him and then see him explain it, um, I had a great foundation in, in, in that approach. And also coincided in the early 2000s when this games-based approach was you know, coming to the fore in, in rugby coaching. So yeah. it's uh, you know, a variety of ingredients that have helped me get to where I am now and how I use the approach. All right, moving on then. On your website, you mentioned that you like to use the principles of play for rugby for a lot of your sessions. Quick quick little test here. Um, for, for you, what, what are the principles of play for rugby? And also, why would you recommend that coaches use that in terms of a guideline for, for some of their sessions? It's a, great, it's a great question because if you have to read certain uh, national governing bodies' uh, textbooks, mm. they have their certain list. And what I've noticed, it's kind of the same all the way around the world. Right. And my principles are different to those those principles but in, in in one sense you could probably say they're the same thing mm-hmm. i just i just come at it from a different viewpoint yeah in the sense for example principles of attack i asked the question what is the objective in attack mm. which in my opinion it's the score tries. tries absolutely yeah you know that's the number one and therefore the next question you know whether it's a trying to teach a coach or coach players is okay how do you score those tries and for me, the first logical step of the process is you've got to run into space. Because mm-hmm. if you run at a player, he's going to tackle you. And you're not going to so score that try. <laughs> yeah, he's going to stop me scoring. And that's the number one objective in defense. You're trying to stop me scoring. Mm. And the next, so the second step in that defensive question is how do you stop the team scoring? Well, for me, you form a line across the field. What does that line then do? It goes up. The team starts to pass it. So then you go out. You, you drift. Um, and then not only you get to the close of the ball carrier, you make a tackle. Mm. So in essence, they're my four fundamental principles in defense. 
Going back to the attack, obviously trying to score. How do you do that? Run into space. Okay, the opposition are trying to tackle you. You get tackled. The next principle that I have then is keep going the same way. If you have a line across the field and you keep going the same way, eventually, in principle, they will run out of defenders. Mm-hmm. They don't keep going far side and reorganizing. What helps with that then as well at the same time, you have players out wide. Because mm. if you have a narrow attack, the defenders will line up against you. It closes the space. Mm-hmm. So then you have players in the wide channels, whether it's the 5-meter channel or 15-meter channels, depends on age and type of competition and stuff. But have width. What does that naturally do? That spreads out the defense. Mm-hmm. Now, if they spread out, you then go through the space in the middle. They come and tackle you. Now the space is that wide. So it's like a constant dynamic change between the different mm-hmm. scenarios you have. So they're my basic four attack principles. Yeah, that's interesting the way you've done that because I think any, any coach who's done any of their levels has answered those questions about what are the, the six principles of play. And you, you've gone, you're looking at it in a different way where you've, you've stripped it down to, to four attack, four defense. Do you find that's a way that provides clarity to players, whether it be on the, on the practice field or in the classroom? Yeah, definitely. And that's, you mentioned the word clarity. That's exactly what came into head, my head when he started to, to talk just then. And because when you're in the heat at the moment, you want to go back to your default thing. Mm. And if it's clear and concise and simple, it's very easy to remember. It's very easy to put it into practice. And it's, they are, for me, they, that's what you break the game down to in those two sides of attack and defense. It, it comes down to those simple key things, in my opinion. Yeah, that's cool. And what do you, what have you had in terms of success with using this this approach? I, I noticed on your website as well. You talk about your your time at Denston College there, and you were able to turn around the performance of the program there. Was it was this involved a lot in in that process? So during that that experience and that time at Denston over eight years, I I started to towards the end of it mm-hmm. in two thousand twelve through Wayne Smith, understand how you um, research tri-scoring trends. Yeah. And I then got into a bit, little bit more specific of like almost like sub-principles below those two aspects that then help you score tries and help stop tries. Um, and in defense, for me, the, those two sub-principles are, in essence, having a sweeper, uh, which in essence is that normally most people have like a, a scrum half and nine, like five meters behind um, the D-line. Yep. And I never called it a sweep before I came to Chile. It was, it was one of the kids, one of the 16-year-old kids I was coaching. I was trying to explain it in the best I can. The kids have good English understanding. And he just described the word sweeper. Yeah. And so then if you think of that concept of painting an image to what the words, mm. so I have a sweeper behind the D-line. And then I'm sure most people out there have a pendulum back three uh, defense system that goes side to side behind that in case there's any errors. So through that research project, I, I found those two very important. And then on the attacking side of sidestepping and offloading skills, are crucial to helping you get into that space and score the tries. Absolutely. And pretty much every try has passing in it. So they're, they're the three sub-principles in attack and over my time at Denston, where I had a you know, very lucky to have a clean slate and take it where I wanted to, I saw the vision going. 
And for the first four years, in essence, I, I coached across the, the whole school from the 12-year-olds to the 18. You know, really fine-tuning those principles and developing my condition games, as I, as I call them. Mm-hmm. And for the first four years, I kind of helped the coaching team in the first team, which is the under-18s. And then from 2009, I, I headed up the coaching team. And by applying these principles and games understanding, you know, teaching in, in, in a classroom environment using videos and understanding, as well as physically doing the game, it had a big turnaround in performance. Um, in the period 2005 to 2008, the first team played 53 matches mm-hmm. against a variety of schools. And the average tries for per game was 2.5. And tries conceded was 3.4 tries per game. Not, not the best? Not, no. <laughs> um, and it was something like a 20% win percentage. Yeah. And during that four years, I was teaching the younger kids mm. and coaching them and getting them to understand the philosophy and the approach. So when these players started to move into the first team environment, over a four-year period, in 10 less games, the, the team scored 41 more tries. Oh, nice. And they conceded 135 less tries. Oh, wow. That's great. Which turned around the average tries per game from 2.5 to 4.0, a significant improvement, and then decreased tries against from 3.4 to 1.1. Ah, that's excellent. Yeah. So across a four-year period, we conceded on average one try per game. And applying those principles that I developed and learned through a variety of sources, um, it had a major impact on the success of the program, and the fixture list got tougher, um, and the performances got really much better. Yeah, that's great, and that's a great little case study, and I think for coaches who are starting up a new role, provides a lot of guidance in terms of you know, setting out what happened before and what, what's happening now, and you can, you can really pick up some road signs along the way. And when when you reflect back on it, you can you can assess what what your techniques were like and whether they were working or not, and that can help your coaching as well. Most definitely, and like I say, the reflective reflective coaching is you know, where you're looking at how you did things and how you can get things better and improve on it. You know, it's definitely an excellent part of the coaching process. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think as coaches in general, we're usually really good at the planning side of things. We, we have an idea on what we're going to do and what we want to achieve from our session. But then that follow-up at the end, that, that review uh, and that, that time to reflect on the session, I know personally the, that I've had to put some systems in place to make sure that happens. Yeah, and that's definitely one skill I got. I've improved here in Chile. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of made it a thing when I was in the club coaching the adults on a Tuesday and Thursday nights before I got in the car to come home. I would sit down and you know work, reflect on what can we do better, or what do we need to work on it in training each week, and mm-hmm. and, and that that process, that cycle again helped improve performance significantly here in, in Chile as well with the adults in in the top division. Yeah, and I've gotten to a place where I've I use my iPhone a lot with uh, with memos in the calendar, where I'll put in a, a memo after every session that I know I'm I'm coaching. It'll be a reminder to, to prompt me to do my review, which I then, I, I've created a form via Google Docs and I'll put in my review in that form and then I'll have another memo pop up that before my next session 
to remind me to go and look at that review and make adjustments uh, moving forward. And I, I think it's crucial to, to go through a process like that to get better. Definitely. And you, like, you have to be, like, if you put in place there a disciplined approach. Otherwise, if you leave it a few days, you don't quite remember as much mm. or you've forgotten some things that you had fresh in your mind. And you know, I can recommend to coaches out there, the, the sooner you can do it, the closer to when you did the coaching session, mm. the better reflection you make and the, the knowledge and things you have of that session are very, very clear. All right, so, so moving on there, um, giving your website quite a, quite a plug this interview, but uh, there's, there's a quote on there that says uh, something along the lines of uh, thinking differently about the way you see the game, and you're, you're obviously someone who, who, who enjoys doing that. Um, at the time of recording this, we're coming off a, a, a pretty fascinating match between Italy and England in the Six Nations, and there was obviously some 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 great uh, thinking there in terms of uh, strategy on Italy's behalf. It's quite a quite a polarizing issue. You either loved it or you hated it. Um, I'm definitely the one in the I'm definitely in the love it category. Um, we're talking about not contesting Iraq, therefore creating no offside line uh, because there's only a tackle. What just from that from that episode that we saw. What do you think some lessons are there from a coaching standpoint, both for for the team doing that strategy and the team uh, being on the receiving end of it? Because you know we saw that England took you know a good 30, 40 minutes to to adjust to that. The number one easy number one thing I would say is making sure all your players know the laws of the game. Because <laughs> um, it was quite fascinating. You know, it's going around social media at the moment. Is the moment James Haskell asked what is the rule of the ruck? Mm. And the fact that James Hassel is using the word rule. Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. And it's a law. Yeah. Um, so there's a bit of tongue-in-cheek there. Of, you know, make sure your players know the exact laws of the game in, in areas that will affect the actual flow of the game. Mm. Then it's to make sure not only have you got kind of plan A, B and C, it's almost like plan Z. Mm. In way left field that every now and again a coach has identified something in your game, you know, certainly in competitions and places where people review their opposition teams and things, um, which therefore then you will need as the coaches to develop self-reliant players who can make ta- tactical decisions on the move in mm-hmm. high-pressure situations. Um, because it, for me, in, in those moments in that first half, it came quite evident that England needed to pick and go right from the ruck. Yeah. Rather pass it, which they quite often do, pick and go straight away, you know, lying on the floor, pop it straight up. So in essence, there are no ruts mm. in, a, in a faster way, whereas if you, the guys fall over and, you know, three players go over and hover there, you know, you're wasting time. So it's England almost literally needs zero second ruts to keep the game flowing. And for me, tactically, it was either pick and go or offload out the tackles mm. on the ground or, you know, in midair. So... You know, that's they're the, the three you know key things straight away that you can come up with. And I suppose the next question following on is then what do you need to do to provide that environment so players can do those decisions? Yeah, and that's that's the fascinating part for me is is just watching that that first half and to see how how much uh, England obviously hadn't experienced this before and had had clearly never been there or never simulated something like this and they it wasn't until they went 
off at half time that they came back and made the, and had made the necessary adjustments. I think we saw Courtney Laws do a really good pick and go uh, from the base of a non-existent ruck. Um, and yeah, I found that I found that whole whole process really really interesting. Yeah, and like you mentioned in that second half, it, they did offload it, did pick and go, and they scored tries quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And they were beautiful tries mm-hmm. uh, in both corners of the, of the field. And so it's you know you describe in essence it was the halftime team talk that they were able to change it. So mm-hmm. for, from a coaching aspect, how can you develop and provide those opportunities in a in a coaching setting? Mm-hmm. So for example, quite often there's a guy that gets injured and he's on the floor for a minute. You know, in in like the real match on a Saturday, that that happened a few times. So what what do you facilitate your players to do in that those huddles in training, so they can come up with the plans to mm. say rules or conditions you put in a game that gets them to think. So it's you know, I've written here that you know decision making is a skill that needs teaching, it needs training, and it mm. needs coaching. Yeah. Um, if they don't do it in training, they're never going to be able to do it in a in a game, and that's the 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 key question as a coach is how do you develop that in your sessions? Yeah, it's, it's it just added to the the Six Nations this year. I just thought it was fantastic. The quality of rugby was amazing, and uh, O'Shea and Venter, you know, hats off to those coaches for for coming up with that strategy. I feel it was um, they obviously saw it was the the one way to to keep them in the game, and they did it so well. And yeah, I just think it was. Fantastic. Okay, moving on then. When you're coaching, what's your favourite part of the game to coach and, and why do you why do you enjoy it so much? My favourite part of the game to coach would be counter-attack. Yep. Um, really been fascinated it, with it the last few years, um, which comes from the from my background of using a games-based approach. More recently with the try-scoring trends research I've done, for example, you know, I'm up to over 3,000 tries now across various levels of the game, club, mm. provincial and international, both hemispheres. And 42% of tries are scored from counter-attack opportunities where you get the ball from the opposition ball. So that's quite a fundamental fact in the game. So most tries are scored from counter-attack. So I believe that most of your training time should be used counter-attack training. So is that counter-attack from turnovers as well or counter-attack solely by kicks? It's it's kicks, knock-ons, interceptions, yeah, right. break tackles, line-out scrums. Yep. Um, and that 42%, the big chunk of that 42% comes from kickbacks. Okay. You know, so genuine counter-attack opportunities. Mm-hmm. And for me, the best way to train that, coach that, is using condition games, games for understanding. Um, it gets all the players involved, forwards and backs working together. You can work on attack and defence at the same time. You know, that's to say you're part of a coaching team and you've got two assistant coaches. Mm-hmm. You know, you could say one's looking at one team, one's looking at the other, or one's looking at the attack principles, the other's mm-hmm. looking at the defensive things you want to work on. And it challenges you as a coach to design games that allow player decision making and creativity. You know, and so I believe you can have a big impact on not only individual performance but the whole team performance. So that's my favourite part, and, and and the why really. It's it's a it's a very important part of the game with so many tries coming from turnover ball. Yeah. So how would that look if someone was watching a session and you're working on turnover ball? 
again, it's an area that my coaching I developed specifically here in Chile the last four years. And you know, the way I would design it, for example, I'd say to a team, you've got three rucks to score a try. Yeah. So if it got to the third ruck, the, the opposition would know that. And, you know, the, the ruck allows that team to steal the ball. Or if they're kind of contesting it, it's like a bit more of a contact session. I'll just roll the ball mm-hmm. to the scrum half. Straight away, the other team attack. Um, another rule I might say is you have to box kick at the second ruck. So you still got, you know, the, the first phase and the first mm-hmm. ruck to score a try. Mm-hmm. But if you get to a second ruck, you have to box kick. Yeah. You know, so you're therefore, you know, you're working on your kick chase, you're getting kickbacks. Or you receive a ball in the 15-meter channel and you have to kick it down the channel. Right. So, you know, let's say you're in your own 22 or so, you would, you know, you would bomb it the length. If you say around the halfway line, players would tend to grubber kick it down the channel. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously in other areas, you know, players might chip kick it, you know, or, or cross field kick to completely the opposite side. It, mm-hmm. You know, there's so many options available. There's some of the, like, the three types, three of the conditioning games I would put in practice. And yeah, great. So that's like the terms and stuff and what would it look like in essence utter chaos yeah yeah <laughs> you know you got players everywhere you got different formations it's never the same scrum half yeah you know everyone's getting great games understanding of all the different roles and responsibilities um everyone's active we mentioned earlier about you know working and conditioning at the same time you'd find lots of tries get scored just because Players break down because they're fatigued and mm. tired and not so fast or they're slow on their decision-making. Mm. You know, and, and then from a coach's aspect, I, I'm saying very little. The only thing I'm saying is, in essence, I'm refereeing, the, obviously, the laws of the game and then the specific rules in the game. You know, so if a team didn't, you know, kick it on the third rep, I'll just kick the ball somewhere else and they play with that second ball. Mm-hmm. Um Lots of encouragement one-on-one with guys or as a team, you know, great try or, you know, positive praise one-on-one with a player as you run past you, just, you know, give them a, you know, a fist pump or a little word of encouragement. Yeah. Um, so that's that's what it would look like. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that, you know, allowing players to break off into groups and brainstorm and problem solve, that, that would be a big feature as well? Definitely. The Once... I set the very basic first rule up, rules up in mm-hmm. that first set. I usually let them play between five minutes and seven minutes. It mm-hmm. depends on kind of where they're, they're developed using, you know, understanding the approach. And about two and a half minutes in, kind of times in whenever a try gets scored, right? Pause, quick half time, you've got 30 seconds. Mm. The, the two teams would get in the player-led huddle. And they would facilitate what's working well. Okay, and what do we need to work on? And every now and again, you might notice it's kind of the same player talking mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Let's say at the end of the, the five-minute set, I kind of give them a little bit, say two minutes, one minute to two minutes, rather than short, sharp 30 seconds. And I would say to, okay, Jack, you can't talk. Yeah. So it allows, it helps the younger players, tend to be the younger players or the less experienced players, it gives them a chance to speak. Mm-hmm. rather than a dominant player always talking and kind of shutting down the other players. Or I would say, you know, Johnny, you lead the, the circle. And quite often, again, that would be the quietest player in the team. Yeah. Um, so with, 
empowering that player to run the circle and letting a dominant player be quiet and just allow them to talk at the end in case what he's thinking hasn't been said, he'd then say it at the end. Um, it's, a, it's a balancing act that you need to judge with your, you know, the experience of your players and you know, what you're working on. All right, great. Well, we always end the show with the same final four questions. When you were a kid growing up, who was one of your favourite players running around that, that got you really into the game? It would have to be Tim Rodberth, yeah. who was playing for Northampton Saints at the time. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was one of their captains, played for England, and he was part of the British Lions winning tour in South Africa in 1997. And yeah. Great presence on the field, uh, played in my, like, my position, my back row. Mm. Um, and at the same time during that period, I mentioned him earlier in, in the show, John Oliver was my PE teacher. He yeah. was the Saints captain. And he played for England at the time and just great inspiration to be able to, you know, back in those days, he'd join in our matches with us, we'd tackle him, we'd rock him <laughs> That's <out>. awesome. <laughs> you know, we, we became his guinea pigs to keep him in shape and stuff. And <laughs> I remember Monday morning, 9 o'clock P lesson, 13 years old, he's been, you know, playing at the weekend and doing what they did in the amateur days and he'd make us do the bleep test twice. Yeah. Or, we're running around the reservoir because that's what he needed to do for his England training. So, you know, both great inspirations for me. And, you know, John's, you know, the, the main reason why I'm doing what I'm doing now. So, you know, great players for different reasons. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Okay. And what, what about now? Who are some of the players you like seeing, uh, seeing play the game? I kind of sit on the fence and kind of say various all black players at the moment. Yeah, who can't, uh, can't go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're just, just almost like a different beast. Um, mm. In particular, you know, Aaron Smith for me, you know, proving that rope is not all about brawn and size mm. and power and stuff. It's about, you know, speed, speed of running, passing, decision-making. Um, you know, I just think he's, he's a great attribute to have in a team, and certainly in a nine position. Yeah, and I think well, I was watching a bunch of Super Rugby over the weekend and, just when you flick from one game to the other and it's, say, uh, you've been watching a South African or an Aussie team and, and then you go to a, a New Zealand derby, it's just everything's 10% faster and 10% more clinical and 10% more physical. And I think there's, there's a lot you can, you can get out of that from a coaching point of view or to watch the style of rugby that they play and some of the initiatives that they take. And you know, linking into the theme of this, sh- this show, I don't think it's any surprise that they are so good because they are a games-based coaching yeah. culture in New Zealand. Yeah. And they're very player-centered. Um, and empowerment is a big thing of the All Blacks and the Super Rugby sides all the way down to the, you know, the rep teams and the, and the schools and clubs. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Okay, and on to coaches. Who's a, who's a high-profile coach that you really like uh, the way they go about their business? It's linked to again the influence he's had in my career, Brian Ashton. He's my he's my coaching mentor, and to be able to FaceTime here from here in Chile and just pick his brain or just ask his advice about things at different times, um, you know, and the, the impact he had on the England team that helped win the World Cup. Yeah, it, it just coincided with me starting coaching. You know, just seeing that victory in, in Australia. Uh, sorry to man- mention yeah, that again. I don't remember um, it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it just coincided for me getting on that coaching path and then trying to work out why England were so so successful. And mm. Brian laid the foundations pre-World Cup. 
Um, and then, as I say, I was lucky to learn firsthand from him. And then at the same time, Wayne Smith, the current All Blacks assistant coach, he, he's the reason I've been here in Chile for four years, just through going to one of his conferences in England. And he was in contact with the, the community I've coached in. Um, and he, he shared with us why the Chiefs won the Super Rugby competition in 2012. And that's where I learned the try scoring trends aspect and going into that research and that detail of why tries are scored and conceded. It's had a major impact on then how I design my games, mm. how I educate my players. So those two have been great influential coaches for me. Yeah, you couldn't find two bigger names and more respected coaches in the business for sure. Okay, and the last question, who's someone in your local community in the grassroots who's uh, digging away and uh, doing great work? I'd have to say a lad called Jack Moran. He's currently director of rugby at Dunstan College, okay. who, are, who I now mentor. Yeah. But he, he was one of my old boys going through the school. He was a big part of our success, and he, he, got, he started to change that culture at Dunstan. And he got injured. Um, I can't remember if it was playing rugby or maybe another sport, cricket maybe. He loves his cricket, and he can no longer play. Yeah. And so from a very young age of 18, he wanted to get into coaching. And, oh, wow. While I was away at university, he got he got stuck in with a local amateur club, um, got involved in rep teams down in the south of England. At the same time, just knocked up his own sevens team that did like some amateur tournaments around England in the summer. That's great. And then during his PGC, starting to become a teacher, he was at Durham and said went along to the club and says, "I want to coach. I'll do whatever you want." And you know, he coached one of their abuser teams, Bucks teams, for, for a season. And all that variety of experience now, he's putting it to the test and in, a, in an environment where he has, he's in charge of a rugby program in a school setting. And, you know, he's, he's a great kid. That's great. Learning to learn, um, seeking out people, you know, asking help, asking advice from me and stuff like that. So, what, what was his name? Sorry, Jack Moran, you said? Jack Moran, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you could look at that and say, oh, what a shame he had his playing career cut so short. But you could also look at it and say, what, what an awesome opportunity. He's, he's going to get a decade of coaching in before, for, before some people even start coaching. So he's going to be really well positioned. Yeah, he's, I would say he's light years ahead of his generation of coaches at, at that young. You know, he's in his early 20s, mid-20s. And, yeah, he's, the amount he's learning in the last five years, it's, you know, it's mind-blowing. You know, it's Fantastic. setting himself up for the future, which is great. Yeah, agreed. All right, then, well, I just want to say thanks, Nick, for giving up your time to coming on the show and uh, talking to us about not only uh, the, the rugby landscape in Chile, but uh, TGFU and... and ways that coaches can employ these these uh, strategies into their day-to-day sessions. Uh, I've gotten a huge amount out of it and uh, no doubt uh, listeners have as well. So, yeah, once again, thank you very much. No, thank you, Andy, and thanks for allowing the opportunity to have this chat online and it's, it's great to do this and share experiences and, and keep learning. Yeah, no worries. Happy to do it. All right, cheers, mate. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review via iTunes and keep listening for the next episode. You can also follow us on Twitter at RugbyCoachSCNR or via the website at TheRugbyCoachesCorner.com. Until next time, 
keep sharing ideas to make the game better.